The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Good morning. Before we look in the Word today, I just want to take a moment to remember and honor someone really special to us. Uh, this last Thursday was two years since our uh, beloved Pastor Gary DeSalvo went to be with the Lord. If you're, if you're new to TBC, if you're a college student or just new for another reason for another church, you might not have had the privilege of knowing um, Gary. Um, he taught us the Bible and he taught us how to love one another. Um, I've got a quote from Gary today, actually, in my message. Um, one of the last things that Gary said to me, I was with some other guys seeing him the week before he died, and, and he said, teach the Bible, love your brides, and love the body of Christ. Now, I've thought about that so many times because that's really what Gary taught us. He loved Bev so well. He taught us the Bible, and he taught us to love one another, and we as Temple Bible Church want to keep doing that. We want to do that here and we want to do that all over the world. One of our pastors has been on across the world. Pastor Tim has been in Rwanda with some pastors and their wives doing a trip actually with Liberty University where his brother um, oversees some education and Tim teaches part-time. And these pastors, one of, one of them sent a, a picture. This picture just said, please give greetings to our brothers and sisters at Temple Bible Church from the Basse region in Rwanda. So greetings from our brothers and sisters in Rwanda. Um, and then last thing, I'm not sure if they're in here, but we just say pray for, uh, for Justin and Jennifer Decker and their sons. It's their last Sunday here in town, and they are headed to Thailand to do missions. So pray for the Decker family. Well, we're in Mark chapter 12. So if you want to turn there, you can. And today we're going to talk about the God of the living. We're going to talk about the God of the living um, and we'll talk, really start with a parable, then kind of go to a word picture and go very directly as Jesus is about to die and is speaking really clearly to several groups of people. Now, I grew up in Southeast Texas. A lot of people can't tell from my accent. They think I'm from New York or Philadelphia. Um, in Southeast Texas in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was not a lot of internet access, partly because internet didn't exist, but didn't have a lot of theology books, so I got a lot of my theology early on from country music. Um, so you can imagine it was real bad, right? But every once in a while, you'd come across a nugget, and one of my, one of my favorite theologians is a guy named Johnny Cash, and uh, Johnny Cash said this, Johnny Cash said, it's good to know who hates you and to be hated by the right people. And in Mark chapter 12, it's probably Tuesday of Passion Week. Jesus is going to die on the cross three days from this day. And Jesus increasingly sees who hates him. And it turns out he's hated by all the right people. So that's, that's what we're going to look at today. Mark 11 ends with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They're trying and failing to trap Jesus. Whose who's baptism? John's baptism. Is it from God or is it not? And you can't trap the one in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So chapter 12 begins with him saying, hey, I've got an answer for you, but it's not the answer you're looking for. So he tells them, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things in chapter 11. And then chapter 12 starts this way. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. He leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants 
to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So here's the story. Vineyard, fence around it, digs a pit for the wine press, builds a tower, leases it, comes to get some fruit. And they, they took the servant and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son, and finally he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him. But they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Well, God, we want to confess that, in fact, Jesus is the cornerstone, and we don't want to be like the builders who rejected him, to whom he became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We want to be built up into this beautiful temple that you're creating as the people of God. So help us to humble ourselves before your word. Help us to be shaped by it, God. Help us to be people who spread your image across all the earth for your glory, because you are the God of the living. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, he began to speak to them in parables. Well, who is them? We gotta go back a little bit to last week, Mark eleven twenty seven. It's the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And Jesus is bringing together the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, people who honestly didn't like one another very much. But he's gonna bring them together all with a common enemy, namely him and he starts with a story and the story he really indicts them as evil they understand hey he's talking about us and it's going to eventually incite them to murder so he says he had one other a beloved son he sent him to them saying they will respect my son and he's being really clear with them you you don't respect me as the son of God you don't recognize who I am and you're trying to kill me here's what's going on I can see What's going on? And he's evoking something that they understand. He's basically saying to them, you're, you're like the, the people in Isaiah chapter five. You, you failed at building up the vineyard how, how you should. And so if you wanna turn with me to Isaiah chapter five, you can. Look at the first seven verses of Isaiah five. It's, it's really amazing how clear and how poignantly Jesus says you're the tenants of the vineyard. Isaiah chapter five, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a hill. He dug it, he cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. On Mark chapter 12, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for it. He built a wine press and built a tower. See, Israel's the vineyard. 
And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more is there for me to do for my vineyard that I've not done for it, but it yields wild grapes? And now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I'm going to remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall. It shall be trampled on. I'll make it a waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I'll also command the clouds to not rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So Jesus is saying, you're, you're the, the tenants that bring about the, the wild. God is bringing judgment on Israel, and he's bringing it through his beloved son. And man, can you imagine how angry they are? They're the, the religious leaders of Israel. They're the leaders of the nation. They're the gatekeepers through which everything goes. And they thought heaven was going to descend on the world through their nation from a kingdom that they would rule over. We could have the danger of thinking the same sort of thing. And so Jesus then says, Jesus then says, have you not read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Well, last week in Mark 11, we looked and Jesus quoted Psalm 118, 25 and 26. This week, he's quoting the same psalm. It's the same day. He's teaching generally the same group of people the same thing. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Look at Psalm 118, 22 and 23. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes He's saying, I'm the one you've rejected and I'm the cornerstone. Now this cornerstone language, cornerstone language, it's, it's a really interesting thing because they're looking at the temple and they think the temple is the center of where worship happens. It's a center of their religious life. And Jesus says, no, I'm the cornerstone. I'm what this whole thing is built on, not the temple, me. They wanted worship to be centered on the temple. They wanted to be the gatekeepers, but they were not good shepherds. The Old Testament was really, really clear. Messiah was going to come. Worship would be centered around him, the Savior. But they thought worship would center around their geopolitical entity as they overtook Rome. One of the authors that I read this week said, heaven will not descend to earth through any nation today. It hasn't since God tied his presence to the temple of ancient Israel. It's all about Jesus, and they rejected his agenda for the world. They crucified the Son of God. We've got to be careful as we think about who God's people are, who the actual source of the gospel is, because the gospel of the kingdom now springs forth from the church. When you think about it, the church, we're meant to be a signpost to the kingdom of God. We're the people through whom his will is done on earth as it is in heaven we're the people who find our treasure not in the kingdoms of the world, not in mammon, but in heaven. We have brothers and sisters from every nation. The world would say, make much of yourself, get as much as you can have for yourself, think chiefly about yourself as the center of the universe, but there's this countercultural power in going, no, Jesus is the center. I'm just one little stone. I'm one little brick being built up with all my brothers and sisters from all over the world into this beautiful temple of worship for God. See, these religious leaders, they moved away from the power of God and the word of God. They became consumed with setting up their own kingdom instead of being a light to the nations. They were legalists with a nemesis, Rome. And if Jesus wasn't going to get Rome out of the way, 
they were going to get him out of the way. So they thought. You see, through his death, Jesus, as we know, is going to establish one new man, one new people from Jew and Gentile, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Even Texans are going to be allowed in. Well, it's good news because of, of this. Uh, what one pastor says, no matter what challenges you face as an American or non-American, ethnic minority or majority, rich or poor, your hope for a just and peaceful society should not rest on the kingdoms of this world. It should rest on the king himself who is establishing his heavenly kingdom in the outposts we call the local church. They were making a mistake. There's a danger we can make this same mistake. Gary talked about this in a sermon he preached 11 years ago. Danny Cunningham, our executive pastor, Thursday, the anniversary of Gary's death, he, he went and listened to a sermon Gary preached. He posted it online and I listened to it and I thought, man, this is a word for today. And what Gary is basically saying is we can confuse sometimes the church in America with America itself. It's a mistake. It's called syncretism when you conflate the gospel with your culture. Here's, here's what Gary says. Are you more concerned about the demise of America or for people who will be cast into a Christless eternity and you haven't told them about Jesus? He says, I, I hear a lot of people talking about our nation, where we're headed, what's happening I hope those same people are telling people about Jesus Christ because this world is not about our kingdom. It's not about this kingdom. It's about his kingdom. He goes on to say, and I'll say to you as well, please don't hear me say anything I didn't. I love this country. I'm grateful for this country. We have many who've served in our military in this building, many who are serving now, and we pray for them. We're grateful for them. And we vote, we write emails to officials, we civilly discuss politics, civilly with one another. But he says, I find a lot of people more concerned about politics and the power of God. I find more people concerned about the demise of a nation than friends who are headed to hell. We can't be like these tenants who confuse kingdoms and try to build our own kingdom. See, he speaks to the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes about tenants, and next he talks about taxes. So they couldn't give an answer for him. They left him. They were frustrated, and then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now this verse, Mark twelve thirteen, is one of the strangest verses in the Bible because who would send Pharisees and Herodians together? They don't like each other, right? The Herodians are married to Rome. The Pharisees are this strictly religious sect. They've got 600 little laws. They've added a God's law. And the Herodians don't care about the law, so they don't like each other at all. But they've got this common enemy. Jesus is just growing and being hated by the right people. They come to trap him in his talk, and they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, if you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They're just trying to hook him in. They're trying to flatter him. But is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he's God in the flesh, right? He understands what they're doing. He says, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. So a denarius is a little coin. It's a, like a day's wage. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is in this? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marveled 
And they are just amazed. Well, before we talk about what this does mean, let's talk for a second about what this doesn't mean. A lot of people use this verse to, to say it's, a, it's about tithing. You render to Caesar, what is Caesar's and the God's, what is God's, so you should give God 10%. That's not what this is saying. Now hear me, um, this is a generous body. We are grateful for tithes. We don't pass the plate. There's some boxes kind of out and around the building. If you'd like to tithe and can't find one of those boxes, I'll be happy to show you where they are, right? But this is a generous body. Giving's a part of worship. We trust that God's gonna use this body to be generous like he always had. This is not talking about tithing. I've got a friend that always thinks it is and he says, no, no, it is about tithing. You render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. So you pay your taxes and after taxes you give 10%, right? Well, that, that's not what this is about. And Jesus wants to help them understand this. So he says, bring me a denarius. It's a coin that's a day's wage. Now I've got a coin that, that we think was uh, from the time of Tiberius, not that it was a denarius, but it would have been really similar. And he says, whose inscription is on it? Well, it's Caesar. It's Caesar. And you can see the writing there, and the writing says, Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. It's, it's saying, the coin says, this is the son of God. And guess what happens? The coin is used throughout the empire, and so as the coin goes... The image of Caesar, the son of the divine Augustus, is spread throughout the empire. It goes all over the empire. And Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar, or what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. They, they've missed the point. They, they're asking in part because they want to trap him. They don't want to submit to their occupying governing authorities. They don't like paying taxes, Right? But they'd also, they don't want to give themselves fully to God. They marvel. And Jesus says, whose image is on it? Well, see, render to God what is God's. Your image is on God's. They don't, they don't want to give themselves fully to God. Their lives belong to him. The Pharisees and the Herodians, it's odd that they come together because they're opposites of one another, but they're really... They're like two sides of the same coin. They remind me a little bit of something that's going on in America today. It's infiltrated the church where people bring their agenda instead of God's kingdom. Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen have written a, a book that I feel like just diagnoses it with surgical precision. They say this, the world gives us two options there are kind of two prevailing narratives in culture today. One perspective asks us to celebrate diversity by prioritizing differences in ethnicity, nationality, gender, and increasingly sexual orientation. This perspective trains us to feel right and good when these various identities are included in our community. A room full of faces the same color feels wrong, even immoral. A second perspective asks us to celebrate uniformity in much of the world. You, you can't or at least aren't supposed to mix different ethnicities. You might live in a remote territory with only one economic class or ethnicity or in a country that practices a caste system that separates people before they're born with no possibility of changing positions or in a political system that demands obedience to the state in all things, including religion. Uniformity is considered the highest value. So a room where people disagree with one another over politics or their view of the world feels wrong, even immoral. Why gather with people with whom you disagree. First, these two perspectives, diversity and uniformity, they might appear to be pushing in opposite directions like the Pharisees and the Herodians did. But these differences obscure the underlying similarities. Both perspectives create community through exclusion. 
It's more obvious in the uniformity perspective if you put out the wrong yard sign, you don't go to the right church or associate with people from the wrong caste, you're excluded from community. But the same thing happens in the push toward diversity. Only a certain kind of diversity is allowed. You can be from a different ethnicity, but you can't disagree on sexual ethics. You can be proud to come from another country, but you can't support the wrong political party. You can be celebrated for your gender, but not for insisting on biological differences between the genders. Whatever the pretenses, both perspectives create community through exclusion. They're like fraternities or sororities, which build community by creating an exclusive club. You can only enter by permission. It's like a country club that filters out undesirable elements by income level, or a protest march that brooks no protests from within, or an academic program that snuffs out free inquiry and ideological dissent year in because others are out. You, under, you understand what that leads to, don't you? On both sides, it's just a radical individualism. You gotta be like me, you gotta conform to my image. The Pharisees and the Herodians wanted Jesus and his kingdom to conform to their collective images, not to be conformed to the image of God. So you carry these thoughts to their ends and what happens? Well, one leads to riots in the streets and the other leads to riots on the steps of the Capitol and neither of these look like Christianity very much at all. See, what's unique about Christianity is what brings us together isn't our tribe, it's not our political affiliation, it's not our language or our economic status, what neighborhood we live in, our last name, where we were born, what kind of food we like. Now that sort of gathering is as old as Egypt, right? It's tired, it's nothing new, it's nothing the world takes note of. What brings us together is Jesus Christ and that's the point he's making to the Pharisees and to the Herodians. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We all bear God's image and together we spread his fame over all the earth. So Jesus gathers the most unlikely converts to love one another. Different classes, different colors, different affinities, different affections, all surrendering themselves to a crucified king. Well, how can this be? That's, that's really hard to do. You might look across the aisle and go, I don't like that person. I don't like what he or she thinks about this or that or whatever else. It's hard, it's hard to be together. It's kind of like this. This is, a, this is a picture from Lake McDonald in Glacier National Park. And I think the church is kind of like these waves that roll on these rocks. Now these rocks in Lake McDonald got sharp edges, they're rough. When they start out, they're, they're kind of ugly, but the waves are like the church. What the church does with you and me, these imperfect people with rough edges, hard and sharp sometimes, it rolls us over, it rubs us up against one another. We've gotta be close to people that don't look like us, like these rocks, they don't sound like us, they don't think the way that we think, but as we're rubbed together in Christ, we're increasingly conformed into something beautiful. If you took out some of these rocks by themselves, some of them would look just really ordinary and plain, but you look at them together, and even in their brokenness, something beautiful is being made. Well, that's what happens in the church when what unites us is the blood of Jesus Christ. Not my tribe, not my language, not the way that I think about this issue that is not the gospel. Well, this confounded the Pharisees, the Herodians, the chief priests. It confounds a lot of people today. But see, it, it's, it's not a political affiliation that's gonna turn the world upside down. It's not an ethnicity 
that's going to turn the world upside down. It's not an affinity that's going to turn the world upside down, but the resurrected Jesus bringing people together does turn the world upside down. There's a word for this kind of gathering. It's called the church. So you think about in a, in a world that's so eager to divide what Paul says to the church. Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. In all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. You, you read that right. In all arrogance, anger, and frustration, bearing with one another in love. That's not what it says, right? In all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That sounds so different than the world, doesn't it? Eager to divide. We will split over anything. That's, that's what the world does, but eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called, one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's the church. See, the two things that the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't get is that he calls those who bear his image to surrender all things. The Pharisees wanted to say, no, I'll do the right things I'm just not sure I'm ready to worship wholeheartedly, right? I'll do all the right actions, but I'm not going to give my heart to this. The Herodians just said, well, you can't tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. But Jesus calls those who bear his image to, to surrender all things. Maybe some questions that would help us think about this. How do you honor people whose opinions differ from yours in Christ? How do you maintain hope in a time like this, how do you maintain unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? How do you respect the former prostitute or former Pharisee sitting in the row next to you? See, a church, a church that's noticed by the world is a church that looks like new creation. It images God by being like Jesus. The call to surrender goes to everyone, not just to Jews, to Gentiles too, to every nation. Imagine their confusion. See, they wanted all God's people to think like them to have the right political view, which was, of course, theirs, right? They wanted God's people to have their act together. They wanted people who were not like the Gentiles and not like other Jews, and they marveled. They marveled at this. Jesus is the cornerstone on, on which this whole thing is being built, but we are the currency that God is spending to spread his fame among the nations, like these little coins, that as we go out, conform to the image of Christ, loving people we disagree with, forgiving people, bearing with one another, serving one another, laying our lives down. It's like a little coin being passed around that says, Jesus, Son of God. We spread his fame through the whole world. See, their biggest problem is they thought they could be righteous apart from Jesus. That's the biggest problem the Sadducees had as well. And that brings us to our, our last section today. Jesus is in fact the God of the living. So the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, they've come and they've tried to trap Jesus and it didn't work. They wanted to kill him. So they sent the Pharisees and the Herodians to him and that didn't work either. They marveled at his teaching. And so the Sadducees came to him who said there is no resurrection. 
and they ask him a question. So Jesus has succeeded in uniting people no one else could, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes. They want to expose him and they're eventually going to kill him. They don't trust him. They try to trap him. Uh, I read a quote this week that says, trust grows in an environment of conversational humility and honesty. Perhaps that's why they don't trust Jesus because they're not humble, they're not honest. Perhaps it's why he doesn't trust them. Perhaps it's why trust doesn't grow well on social media today. But their efforts don't expose Jesus, they expose them. They ask him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring, and the second took her. And he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection when they rise again. Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Well, what a peculiar question. In America, we read that and think, well, wait, wait a second. My brother dies. I have to marry his wife. That's gross. And his wife goes, no kidding. That is gross. That's just so strange to our minds. But in first century Israel, and, and even before that, the law set this up because if you were a female widow, you were in a destitute situation. It, it's set up. What the brothers would have done, they'd have been doing the right thing. You gotta care for these ladies. You gotta make sure they're okay. You gotta make sure their children are okay. You're responsible. But the Sadducees are so confused because they can't figure out how the law works in the resurrection. The Sadducees, see, they only use the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, and they said, we don't really believe in preaching. We just, we just read it out loud they would say, we don't interpret it, we just read it. But in their reading, they're interpreting it right now, right? That's an interpretation of what they asked Jesus. And they couldn't understand. They were so tied to the law that they thought, well, even in resurrection, there will be law. But in resurrection, you won't need law because everyone will see Jesus as he is and will love perfectly. They couldn't understand it. And so, so Jesus Jesus sharply, sharply rebukes them. He says, is this not the reason you're wrong? So you're wrong, right? But you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. He exposes them. Their, their question exposes them. It's really not about marriage. It's about doubt. They don't believe the resurrection is going to happen. And so he says, you've utterly missed the story of Israel. And you don't understand the power of God for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? When Moses hears God speak through this burning bush, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You don't understand. And here's what the Sadducees don't understand. They've come to Jesus. They've come to the right person. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He told the Pharisees in another place, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it's they that speak about me. They've come to the right guy, but they don't understand who he is. And here's what they miss that we don't need to miss. Jesus Christ is the hermeneutical key or the interpretive key to all of Scripture. If you want to understand,
understand the scripture, you have to understand that all the Old Testament, the law and the prophets are pointing to him. All the New Testament flows out of his resurrection. Well, we can, we can be like the Sadducees just in a different way. The Sadducees didn't know the scripture of the power of God because they didn't understand it was pointing to Christ and they didn't believe God could raise the dead. We, we tend to not know the scripture because we don't read the Bible. We just don't have time for it, right? A great exercise is turn your smartphone on and, and, uh, and look at your daily screen time, your average daily screen time. And then please tell me, Chase, I don't have time to read the Bible, right? And I say that because I look at my screen time and I think, what in the world did I, how, how was I on that much? My gosh. We've got to know the scripture because Jesus, he calls himself the word. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This word of Christ, crucifixion, resurrection is the word that's preached to us and it's the wisdom and power of God. So we want to know the scripture. Well, how do we do that as the church? Some of the ways we do that is we do it when we gather in here, right? We study the word in connecting environments in Creekside and in our children's launch pad and our overflow. We study the word together. We grow in knowing Christ together. We do it in small groups throughout our cities and home groups. We do it in men's and women's Bible study. College does this in in Sea Life on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights in both large and small groups on campus. We do it with family devotions, these broken five minutes of trying to teach our kids about Jesus and thinking they're not listening to a thing I've said. But they're, they're listening. You find out after about 20 years of doing that, oh, maybe they heard some of that. This is really amazing, right? We do it in personal study and devotion. We know the word. We do it when we sing, when we confess that he is holy and he is mighty and the moon and the stars are declaring his praise. We're singing songs about Christ in the scripture. We do it in a variety of, of smaller environments that are just as, if not more important settings than this one here. And then we do it when we teach the word to the next generation. When we proclaim Jesus to the next generation, every member in this place in some form is both student and teacher of the word. See, the Sadducees weren't good teachers because they weren't pointing people to the Messiah. They were pointing him away or people away from the Messiah. If you want to be a great teacher of the word, what you got to do is just point people to Jesus Christ. You just take the word and use it to point people to Jesus Christ. The best teachers will point others to Jesus, be eager to be convicted from the spirit themselves and apply the word and learn to surrender to Jesus and love his people. See, Israel, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, even the Herodians, all Israel was meant to be an embassy from heaven to show the world of God's love for his people and they failed at it. They failed at it. The Sadducees did because they thought God was God of the dead and not the God of the living. But Jesus says he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You're, you're quite wrong. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And through the resurrected Christ, we will resurrect with him all of us for whom he's not a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A crucified Messiah is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to a lot of people. But Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, buried, and raised from the dead for the sins of all humanity is the only way of salvation. And he is the cornerstone on which the temple of the living God is being built. The church, this one new man. See, there's power 
and a gathered group of people. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're all going to gather as a crowd three days later. And in mob violence, they're going to scream, crucify him. And what they do is awful and who they've become is awful. The power in a gathering is not just about what happens when they gather, but it's about who they become. But listen, their gathering to crucify Jesus is going to create another gathering that they're not prepared to deal with. See, there are people who are going to gather not based on their nationality or their political affiliation, not based on their race or their food preferences, not based on the neighborhood they live in or their last name. They're going to gather around this resurrected king, around this empty tomb. There are going to be people they disagree with about lots of things, but they agree about the most important thing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And at first, there's going to be just a few of them. And the Jewish leaders are going to hunt some of them down and kill them. But weeks later, thousands will be added to their number. And the crowd's going to start to grow. And then they'll be persecuted and they're going to scatter. And the crowd is going to continue to grow in smaller little gatherings in Jerusalem and in Judea and Galilee, Samaria. And it's going to spread to the ends of the earth. It's going to start small, but it's going to keep growing and growing and growing no matter how people try to stop it. See, there are people that will try to stop it in Myanmar and Afghanistan and Pakistan and North Korea. They tried to stop it in China. They tried to stop it in Ethiopia. But see, this crowd of people who lay themselves down for the sake of their risen king can't be stopped. It's called the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it because they couldn't prevail against Jesus. He's the risen king, and he is the cornerstone. And now we are like living stones being built up into this beautiful temple and it's made up of stones that don't look alike they don't sound alike they're from every tribe and tongue and nation and this people will give glory to the resurrected king let's pray well Jesus you are the cornerstone a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and you were crucified by those you came to save they didn't know or understand. But God, we know. And it's a marvelous thing that you are the cornerstone. So instead of rejecting you, we want to bow before you in worship. And we want to bear your image and we want to spread it over all the earth. Jesus being the cornerstone and we being the currency that gives glory to God and all the earth because you are not the God of the dead, you're the God of the living and you rose from the dead to give life to all who believe. So we wanna live to give you glory and bring as many people with us as possible that they might know the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. So let us confess now together that you in fact are the cornerstone. In Jesus' name, amen.